Okay. Isn't it interesting uh, that five minutes of focusing on attempting to at least every single breath is so remarkable, right? It can seem like such a long time. Maybe it sometimes seems so quick. Um, one or two people, how was that for you to just try for five minutes to stay with every breath from beginning to end? Yeah. You just jump right up. Just speak out. Well, my question is, uh, I over the years of uh, that counting, and I was doing ten on ten, and I didn't get to hundred, but I was using that. And okay. but I have never done the only five to ten percent background thing. I find that I habitually make it much more, <coughs> and so I wonder if you comment on that. Yeah. Um, well, the question was about using the counting method or probably sim- the, the similar point noting. could apply to the noting method, uh, whether it's prominent or in the background. The key question, of course, is you know, what are the results? And I would say that uh, I think that there's a great wisdom in the, in the Buddha that he put so much attention on the body and the awareness of the body. For one, it draws us out of the stream of verbal thought, which is a major source of difficulty. Second, uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes when we get to equanimity, the interoceptive interoceptive awareness of the internal state of the body, the sensations of the gut and digestion, the coolness and warmth of the air in the lungs, the sense of the joints internally, all that, that is a wonderful pathway down into the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system and the brainstem, the fundamental core of the brain. And so by bringing attention down into those body sensations as sensation, that tends to bring us down into a very, very deep place. Now, I find for myself when I... I actually don't like to count very much because it stimulates my verbal mind. So I just do it very softly, especially in the beginning, to you know, establish a kind of rigor or you know, ardent, diligent, and resolute, a certain vigor of attentiveness, a momentum of intention, and then I, I stop counting. And you might experiment with that yourself. Uh, one wonderful way to do interoceptive sensing with the breath is to feel the, the lungs, the coolness and warmth within the lungs, and also the expansion and contraction of the chest. Yeah, there's, there's lots a lot of, to you know. You can say that, or, and you can move your attention around and this, this is where you have to know yourself. Are you moving your attention around because you're lazy? Or are you moving your attention around because your brain really does need more stimulation, whatever's effective for you? And this actually illustrates a general point, uh, which we made to somebody at the break, which is that, in a sense, what we're doing here, all of us together, in this kind of collaborative way, is we're both um, figuring something out, and we'll, we're also demonstrating that you can figure it out. In other words, we're basically operationalizing what might be going on in the brain during these steps that the Buddha laid out and others laid out in our experience, right? Steps toward depth and therefore liberating insight. And then we're establishing and figuring out methods systematically toward activating those brain states, which promote those psychological states, right? So we're doing that. That's what we're doing here. That's useful in its own right. But in a fundamental way, even more importantly, it's a demonstration of what can be done if you play around with this. We don't think that these methods are uh, comprehensive or uh, exhaustive. You know, 
and on your own, particularly as all this information is coming out, wow, you can apply this information about the brain, you know, that underlies the mind, you know, to activate those states on your own. And furthermore, we're trying to sort of establish the ground rules that you as an individual have an individual need so that your character will require more or less of these kinds of tasks. And also, your each meditation session will itself be a unique piece. So you may need to do the counting for the entire session today. Tomorrow you may only need to count to four and you're gone. That's perfect. Um, counting may not work for you next week. That's okay. The idea is to kind of have a sense of the range of things that work for you and to have the, the goal in mind you know, of coming to this very still, focused, quiet place and to do whatever is necessary in the moment for you as an individual to get there. Okay. So now we're going to shift to the next step. Remember, we did steadying the mind internally. Now we're going to do quieting it, and after that, bringing it to singleness. So in terms of quieting the mind, um, we've already spoken of much of this, so I'm going to move on to one method in particular, which is pretty cool, which is... Whole body awareness. And you may remember in the very beginning meditation of the day, I suggested that you try to establish a sense of awareness of your body as a whole. And when you do that method, which I've actually never heard anybody else talking about, so I think it's kind of worth noting because it's fairly novel. Um, When you do that, multiple things are happening. You're pulling attention away from the verbal centers, which tend to be more prone to distraction. You're activating the right hemisphere. Um, You're also um, activating the parts of the brain that are aware of the body as a whole. So, from and it's also a doorway into singleness, which is a cognitive, that sense of unification, one whole thing. Now, how, how many of you were able, what usually happens is there's a sense of the body as a whole for a few seconds, and then it kind of crumbles, mm-hmm. and then attention moves from part to part to part, and then maybe there's a sense of the body as a whole again. Anybody have an experience of the body as a whole? Able to get that? Anybody, could you, a comment or two, just quickly, what do you noticed about that, being aware of the body as a whole? Yeah. She said she pointed out that Eugene Cash, who I honor as a great teacher, actually I really like Eugene, um, also uses this method of whole body awareness, and that it's been useful for her to do increasingly in her own practice. Um, one thing that whole body awareness also does is it takes a person more into an open, spacious, 
kind of awareness, which might be of use to you. Uh, that's more of a Tibetan orientation, if you will. Um, and that's good. Any other person? This time we'll use the mic, promise. How about all the way in the back? Can we get a mic back there? Microphone. How about one mic all the way to the back? We'll just be patient. So uh, one of the things that um, I present in some classes I teach that I do for myself is the sense of body as wholeness, uh, body being breathed, mm-hmm. and um, as a way of getting in touch with simply being rather than doing, to get out of the head, to yeah. notice breath embodied. And with, with that, I see in myself this sense of... Um, of complete spaciousness and equanimity, that body is sitting itself upright. Yeah. And there it, 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 um, it just kind of brings everything that you're talking about. I'm so um, grateful for your, what you're teaching us. It brings it all together in a sense of uh, everything interacting together so we don't have to really do anything. Thank you. Right. Thank you. That's great. One a related method along the lines of what you just said there, uh, and also basically I think what you said, you can experiment with when you're meditating on the breath, um, give up breathing. What I mean by that is not your version of waterboarding, but rather uh, that you just kind of give up generating the breath on your own. You really turn it over to the body. And the sign of that is you're willing not to breathe. The body will breathe. It'll breathe every time. But that experience of giving up to the body breathing on its own and releasing, renouncing any form of deliberate control of the body breathing is a great pathway into selflessness. Mm -hmm. So you might experiment with that. And there's a peacefulness to just the body breathing on its own, just like some people said. And all this aids quiet. You'll notice this. When you're dropping into these places, the... There's a stillness that's going on. There's a whole bodiness that's going on. And so I want to move on here uh, to talk about the next step. So we want to preserve some time for the end of the day for kind of the really juicy stuff, you know. Uh, so singleness and the jhana. So we're going to move right along. And Rick's going to do a little riff here on... You want to, you want to do the question? Because that's the coolness. Okay. Okay, so we're going to talk here about unification of experience because that's the one that has kind of the most interesting stuff. And we also do equanimity and selflessness at other workshops, so we're going to tend to move through those here. All right. Okay. So this unification of experience, which the, the people were talking about, the whole body breathing, were getting that sense of that there's this one whole percept that everything that is happening at this moment is just one sensory experience as opposed to a multiplicity of things. The thing that promotes integration is in the mesial parietal region which is on the inside of the parietal lobes. Parietal lobes are kind of back up and behind your ears. 
And so those do inter- in major role in integrating sensory experience and kind of putting it into the ongoing thought pattern. So whole body awareness, focusing on the body as a whole, probably helps train the brain in the integration of sensory experience, putting sound together with light, together with touch, together with taste, together with smell, together with thought. And it's also an experience of being integrated to being one, uh, one organism in its own right. So to work with that, um, you can intend to, for there to be an integration of experience. Just as you start the meditation with that intention. You can tap the memory of these experiences or the sense of them, either the first time that you've ever had them or as they've been described or transmitted by other teachers and other, uh, other articles or documents or suttas you've read. And then you can, in the same way that we talked about channeling the, uh, channeling the teacher earlier on today, you can activate the frontal lobe engines of intention to, so, to make that, make that sense arise and to sustain that quality of integration. You can invoke that, that jhanic factor of singleness. May akagata arise. May my singleness arise. May I be one-pointed. In the, in, if you've had this experience to any extent, there are oftentimes this kind of this, you're sitting there with all of this multiplicity, all this detail, you know, of, of the, the body breathing as a whole going on. And all of a sudden there's a, and it all centers and comes together as this one kind of thing. Maybe just for an instant. But that kahush, once it happens, is kind of unforgettable. So, for fun, let's take a few minutes and see if we can promote the experience of integrating our integration of all of our sensations by being all one whole thing. So take up your seat. For a minute, Breathe as the whole body. And bring to mind all the experiences of this breathing happening as one thing, one instant. May this singleness of experience arise. Sense to, to the extent that any of it can come alive for you.
there is that potential to bring all of your perceptions into just that one moment. Because they're all arising in just that one moment anyway. Now we're going to talk about another aspect of um, Ekagata, or this unification of awareness coming to singleness, which is equanimity. And equanimity uh, is, for me, one of the most uh, useful uh, notions in Buddhism. And it has a lot of wonderfully useful overlap with modern psychology. Uh, calm means not having reactions. Equanimity means not reacting to our reactions. And so I'm going to speak um, in a summary way about the nature of equanimity, especially in Buddhist practice, and then talk about, uh, Rick and I will talk about two uh, pretty cool ways to promote equanimity in your own case. The first being uh, working with uh, painful memories or experiences in a way that can become increasingly equanimous, and second, relaxing the sense of self that takes things personally. Okay? So, uh, you may have, you will recall that uh, we spoke earlier about the feeling tone of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that feeling tone is pulsed, essentially, um, through the brain. It tracks experience going through, in particular by the amygdala and the hippocampus working together. The hippocampus is involved a lot it's a part of the limbic system, um, portions of the brain that sit on top of the brain stem. The hippocampus looks out into memories of previous experiences, and if they led to bad things, boom, it tells the amygdala unpleasant, and the amygdala sends out the unpleasant pulse. Uh, whereas if those memories um, led to something good, a watering hole, you know, a happy moment with your partner, or what have you, then the amygdala pulse is pleasant. And then based on that pleasant or unpleasant pulse, we tend to react. You may have heard the term in Buddhism, the chain of dependent origination. It's a very psychologically insightful teaching from the Buddha, which basically pointed out that there's this sequence that occurs in which there's initial contact with a stimulus. Right? You think to yourself, oh, I'm going to go get um, a cho- some chocolate ice cream. All right? So chocolate ice cream. First thought of chocolate ice cream. Sounds like a good idea, right? So that stimulus then, contact with that idea, has an initial feeling tone. Contact leads to feeling pleasant, chocolate ice cream, all right? That pleasant feeling tone then leads to craving, desire for chocolate ice cream. Mmm, going to have some chocolate ice cream. And then clinging to the chocolate ice cream. i got to have my chocolate ice cream. That then mobilizes the organism to trundle over to the fridge, right? pop it open, and then what do you see? Your spouse ate the ice cream. <laughs> or your roommate, or someone else. Okay, contact, no ice cream. Feeling tone, unpleasant. Okay, leading to craving. Craving the ending of the unpleasant and the presence of the ice cream. Where's the ice cream? Or the pleasure of knowing who to blame. My wife did it. I thought she was on a diet. What's going on? You know, blah, 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 whatever that is. <laughs> Moving to clinging, which, of course, leads to what? Suffering. All right, that's, that's the old age sickness and death. There you go. 
You ate the ice cream. Your history. That's right. <laughs> so the Buddha talked about the first dart being that initial unpleasant experience, the unpleasant tone. But then the second dart is our reactions to that pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. And by realizing um, that we don't have to react to our reactions. In the short term, you can't stop them. They are what they are. Long term, you can c- cultivate the changes in your brain that lead to uh, change over time in the feeling tone response to experience. But in the moment, it just arises. But what we can do is we can become disenchanted with it. We can realize that chocolate ice cream isn't so great. Headaches are not so bad. They are just what they are. All right? And then we don't have to add insult to injury by overreacting to it. And that's a basic, deep place there. That's in part why, if you're familiar with the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of compassion and kindness and sympathetic joy, the fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity, and it's the foundation of all those, because it's on the basis of this equanimity that we really are able to be in those heartfelt and loving ways with other people most you know, intensely and most effectively. So, I wanted, so Rick now is going to talk about one way in particular to work with the actual way the brain generates memory, which is very cool to um, basically train this amygdala hippocampus system to be less reactive. It's very primed to go negative because if you think about it, most uh, threats to survival come from negative experience. So the amygdala, for example, is about 70% of it is devoted to tracking negative stimuli. Um, if you're familiar with um, the learned helplessness literature, the brain is really also set up to track um, experiences where one should freeze and not act. Uh, so we're kind of primed toward the negative. The brain also registers negative experience, preferentially and instantly, whereas positive experiences use kind of standard memory systems to be tracked. That's why over time we tend to accumulate negative experiences uh, in, you know, in, our, in our emotional landscape. And that's why it's so important to actively take in the good in an active way which is very, very directly help our brain change specifically over time. Okay. So within the context of this negative filtering, the Rick has developed this very cool method for <laughs> altering the amygdala hippocampus circuit over time. I'd like to take some credit for it, but most of this actually is based on some interesting work that um, was publicized in the lay form in a book by Daniel Schachter, C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R, called The Seven Sins of Memory. Um, I encourage you to go out and get that book. You will never be able to trust your memory in the same way again. Uh, well, it's, it's, a bu- it's a beautiful statement about how the fact that memory is a continuously and constantly constructed and re-updated thing. And that the story of your life, as you are telling it to yourself in this moment, is actually not how it happened. It's not exactly how it happened. It's not exactly, well, it's not how it happened. You're telling the story with a lot of embellishment and a lot of rehearsal. And this happened to me and she said that and he said that. If you ran the videotape, it didn't happen that way. It happened in other kinds of circumstances. And we construct that. And there is solid data to show how we do that. Um, If you have eyewitnesses to a car accident, and you isolate the two eyewitnesses from each other, and you ask them at one month, and three months, and at six months, and at a year, 
what happened in the car accident, by the time you get to a year, it's two different car wrecks. <laughs> and the, the red car hit the white car, no, the white car hit the red car, or there's a blue car involved, and it ran a red light and caused the red car to hit the green car, which hit the white car. You know, whoa! It, it completely differentiates out. Why is that important? We, in, in terms of talking about retraining the amygdala and dealing with this negative bias and our sense of being primed for suffering, one of the things we have to do is to some extent dispose or reframe or otherwise look at our past history and our past pain and suffering in a different frame. And to understand at a real in-depth level that when you recall a memory, you bring it out of the hippocampus, you bring it out of the brain, and then you repackage it in the context in which you've just recalled it. And they've done studies, for example, with, uh, with rats doing maze work and stuff like that, where they inhibit protein synthesis at the time that the rat is running the maze. When the rat is running the maze and its protein synthesis is inhibited, it is able to run that maze that it has previously learned and do a good job and get to the, and get to the cheese. The next time it's presented the maze, it doesn't remember. It's a completely naive rat. And it has to be completely retrained to do it again. What's happened? The memory storage of running the maze that time was not allowed to be recoded. Think about the liberation inherent in that concept. And go back to the Dhammapada. You know, as our as our mind as our as as we think, as our mind is inclined, so do we create the world. With our mind we create the world. That is a 2,500-year-old statement proven in a rat lab within the last 30 years. That doesn't mean that what happened to you in the past didn't happen. But it gives you a major ability to reframe what has happened to you in the past in a different context and to hold it in a different light. And that for me is a tremendously hopeful statement based in biology on how to master this very reactive, negatively primed, and, and powerful circuit. So, to shift existing memories in a positive direction, first, right view. Memories are not, rec are not recalled, but they're reconstructed. So, if you're going to recall the memory, or work with this memory, infuse that reconstruction with positive qualities. This actually, for me, is a kind of a fundamental underpinning of therapy, if you think about it. You're with a therapist, a person you trust. You're bringing up traumatic experiences from your life. You're discussing them. They're bringing into some kind of rational context. This actually allows you to reframe. And there's a reality to this. So, how to put positive qualities into that reconstruction? Bring it in a context of spaciousness, in a context of safety. Have the tree at your back. Okay. Compassion, encouragement for yourself. Be aware that this, this traumatic past experience, which to some extent is presently running your life, is, is based in how you have told the story and in what happened to you. So, have compassion for the being who is attempting to work with this process. Have encouragement for the struggle that this being is going to do in taking on this process for the greater good of pursuing one's own path of enlightenment. 
Note that you coped and got through, that there's some good qualities in your experience and how you handled it that got you through to the present moment. You survived. You may have, you may have caused yourself some damage, your, your own organism some damage in surviving, but you survived. You made it through. There's honor in that. Take that honor. Compliment yourself on that honor and use the energy of that sense of, you know, you have a right to be here to move yourself forward in dealing with the memory. And then forgiveness practices. Forgiveness practices, and there's a great book by Jack Cornfield called Forgiveness, which I would commend to you. It's a little short one. Um, are really critical in terms of letting go of this past pain so you can move forward. You know, part of this whole deal of working with bad memories in the past is trying to rewrite it. Well, you can't, really. I mean, you, the event happened as it happened. You can rewrite how it's held. You can rewrite what its significance is for you, how, what it means in terms of how you can carry it forward from now. And it may take time. You may have to forgive yourself for not being able to accomplish this the next five minutes on the Zafu. You know, big deal. So you get a little bit further down the path. The idea is that you're running this marathon of a life and you do this time after time after time after time. And just as, as described, that reaching enlightenment is like wearing down a mountain with a bird flying over it every 100 years carrying a silk scarf and scraping a little micron of granite off the top. Eventually the mountain goes away. It may take several hundred species of birds to be able to do that, but it's, it's, you know, the size of the task should not necessarily devalue the, the technology or the internal technology to try to master that. And then the other thing is to reconditioning in terms of retraining the amygdala, to recondition amygdala labeling in ways that Rick had talked about, cultivating positive emotion at any and all possible opportunities. Bring positive uh, positive experiences and really make them part of yourself. You know, make, really enlighten, en, enliven your life with positive things that happen to you. The absolutely gorgeous sunrise that happened this morning. The fact that this is a crisp, clear fall day. I mean, those are joyful things. You know, somebody says you did a good job. Ask them to repeat that. Oh, yeah? Give me more. You know, so really increase it. That actually, just like you learn any other skill like riding a bicycle retrains the amygdala. We'll get to it in a minute. Uh, it retrains the amygdala. You reframe how this little particular pair, pair, pair of organs in the limbic circuit primes itself for stimuli. And you, and you downgrade it. You make it a little bit less reactive time after time after time. Great, so I'm going to speak briefly about relaxing the sense of self, and then we'll open it up for discussion and, and comments and so forth. So, moving along here. I is a fictional character. This could be a huge topic. Um, <laughs> it is a huge topic. So We're going to do it in five minutes. What the hell? I just roll right through. <laughs> so... Uh, first thing is, we're doing this comment about self in the sense of what the actual experiences of a person is who's experiencing a fair amount of singleness, coming to singleness, the third step 
in the Buddha's roadmap toward awakening, uh, coming to singleness. And in a state of singleness, you've probably noticed there's not a particularly strong sense of self. Quick sidebar, we developed a self through evolution because self is very adaptive. In other words, when people take things personally, that motivates them to do things that lead to grandchildren. Right? If you'll notice in your own mind, self tends to activate under one of two conditions, either a strong sense of threat or a strong sense of desire. In other words, a strong sense of hatred, quote-unquote, aversion and so forth. Fear is a form of aversion. Or a strong sense of greed, you know, greed and hatred. That's what self consolates us. And it's really quite interesting to watch the circuitry in your own brain activate more or less self as it's happening depending on what's going on around you. It's a little bit like for me the you know stereos that have those lights that go up and come down as it gets louder or different frequencies. It's, you can watch self coming and going in your head. It starts then to get lighter, right? What is self anyway? So the things you can do to actually help that release or dampening of self, which many teachers in Buddhism say is the fundamental source of our, of our suffering. So, what are some ways to do that? One is to um, uh, open out into a sense of space. Spaciousness meditations, if you think about it, a lot of meditative practices have to do with a lot of spaciousness. Or even in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about meditating on the sense of space, you know, on the emptiness in the room rather than the objects that are filling the room. Okay, that tends to relax the sense of self. Another is to basically deliberately abandon any sense of self. There are still executive functions. There is still intellect. There is still our best nature active. Bodhicitta is still present. But the, you don't need a sense of self to walk across a room. It's a very interesting experiment to imagine, do I need self to reach for the cup of tea? Does self need to be present to go to the bathroom? Uh, in many ways, actually, it's in that moments like that that we often realize we don't actually need self to swallow. Okay? That's a really interesting investigation. Another is the sense of receiving. Rather than going out to the breath, uh, which has this quality of agency to it, uh, two fundamental attributes of self are agency and possession, identification being a form of possession. So if you relax the sense of agency, uh, that goes out after the breath, and rather surrender to receive the breath, that tends to help this release of self. Another method is to um, take on a quality of selfless service, in this case to the object of attention, let's say the breath. This method is particularly helpful with things like that are very heartfelt, like loving-kindness meditations, where we, we're there to serve. I don't know how I, I've done selfless service in my life. It's really quite profound to do it, where you just give over to, you make a self-chooses to be selfless, if you will. How many of you have ever done that? serve someone as a teacher or guru or some undertaking, some social good, volunteering for Greenpeace, whatever, right? You're just there to do it, right? You just give up. I'm here to do it. As they say in the Western novels I used to read, you're writing for the brand, right? That's it. You just give over to that undertaking, okay? That's also a form of selflessness. Um, and then last, you could um, orient to experience flowing through as just what it is and observe me. 
Well, you can start to watch in your brain or in your mind, actually. I'm sure it represents, it's, on, it's supported by what happens in the brain. You can see an experience arising, a thought, especially a narcissistic thought, like, oh, I did a good job. Uh, what a good boy am I? Or something like that. And then right after that, or somebody likes you, and then me it. Okay? Or this, there's a want for something, a thirst for something. You know, the root origin of the word craving and uh, Polly is thirst, right? There's a thirst for something. It arises and then meing follows a second or two behind. When you start to see, when you start to see the construction of meing, it becomes, it starts lightening up. It starts becoming more and more transparent as a constructed fiction, basically. Okay? All right, so let's open it up for discussion on anything we've covered so far. Particularly uh, the last pieces here about dealing with emotional reactivity and uh, self. Yeah. Bunch of questions and we need the mic. Mic? Okay. Hey, Jane. Oh, okay. How about you first then, Jane, okay? No, you, right there, because you've had your hand up. Oh, two Janes. Jane, Jane, well, correct, correct. Here we go. I wonder if you could, uh, in, about retraining the amygdala, if you could kind of work through an example. Um, let's say I have a memory of somebody I'm in relation, close relationship with kind of disparaging me and it really got to me and I keep remembering it you know, a lot more than I'd like to. Could, can you kind of work through sure. something with that? Sure. Okay, so the, the context is uh, a painful relationship in which I, I'll, I'll, I'll personalize it. I'll do it from my perspective. A personal relationship in which uh, I was dissed. Okay. Uh, a lot. How do I handle that? Um, since I came up with this insight, I better be able to do it. Right? Um, okay. Let me, I'll, I'll lay it out for you real quickly. My dad didn't talk to me from ten, for 10 years between the ages of 19 and 28. Said a cumulative total of 100 words in that 10 years. Because I had the temerity to write my girlfriend when I was 19 and said, you know, I really don't like working for him this summer. And he took that and basically uh, just exhibited rage at me for 10 years. Uh, okay, how do I hold that? One, I survived it. Two, um, now, now looking back, as I try to, uh, to bring that to mind, I'll actually use the example that comes up. This. Maybe this is why it's fresh. My mother gave me a picture over Thanksgiving weekend. I went home with my sister. My mother gave me a picture of my dad. Uh, you know, that's a big picture. It's like that. And out of that, out of that picture frame, is this human being with these soft eyes and a compassionate face and a knowing smile, and what appears on in the picture to be a great deal of loving wisdom. And I was looking at that picture when she handed it to me and I was saying, what is with this? Um, so, what has happened, and this is an example, that's, this is really fresh, I mean, this, I'm talking five days old. What has happened in part is to realize that in addition to the fucking asshole, pardon my French, that I experienced for 10 years with his Germanic 
uh, narcissistic histrionic behavior is this other warm, compassionate, knowing man who did not show that side to me. I can no longer hold him in my single unilateral experience. I have to say this other side was there. Now, I have some other things from other people that says that this face on the, in the picture is also true to them, not to me. Now, I cannot deny the 10-year experience that I had with my father. But I can hold that this other piece was also happening. And I can see going back causes and conditions. I'm a 19-year-old upstart twerp uh, who is making disparaging comments about my father who brought me back from Stanford when I didn't have a job in spring quarter and I was basically almost living on the street. Uh, and he gave me a job for five months and took me back into the house. And I proceeded to turn around and send a nasty letter about how nasty he was to me. Okay, now I got to hold that. And so now I'm holding this in a bigger, bigger frame. And I can't repackage it in the old... In, I can't repackage this new wine in the old bottle because it doesn't fit anymore. Um, so that's, that's a partial example based on an experience. Now suppose I don't have contact with another side. I just have the ten years of my dad and I. I can, in the context of realizing that holding my father with that much anger is doing a disservice to me in terms of how I hold myself as a male, is doing a disservice to me in how I hold my relationship with my four-year-old son. And so I need to drop that. So, okay. What I will do to drop that is to go back and say, hmm, well, there was clearly some difficulties that my father was experiencing. And he had causes and conditions in his life that led him to behave in ways that were probably not skillful. And I need to expand to a space where I can hold my father as a seven-year-old boy or a four-year-old boy experiencing some traumas in his family that led him to that behavior. And you go back, and you go back, and you go back, and you go back to my dad's father, and the father before him, and the father before him, and the father before him. And you can do the same thing down the maternal line. And you can extend out. And pretty soon you see the, the causes and conditions. This is, this is just how things work at that moment. And it was what it was. If I can do that within the context of holding those people, that, the, that entire stream of generations that winds up sitting in this chair, if I can do that holding that entire stream of people in compassion and in, 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 in basically in the Brahma Viharas, in Metta and Mudita and, uh, and Upaka uh, and Karuna, Changes the, whole pe changes the whole picture. And I can never quite put it back in the same bottle again. The whole thing on EMDR that, that I talked a little bit about earlier today. Same issue. You, 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 you suck the energetic charge out of that negative experience. And you do it in the context, either yourself on the cushion or with the therapist or with family members or somebody who will help you to create this space of compassion and, and this container. You can never put that back again.
You know, the, this back again to the to the Dhammapada. Hatred was never ceased by hatred, but by love alone has it healed. This is the ancient and unalterable law from the Dhammapada. Hmm? Oh, the, the the quote: "Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is it healed." This is the ancient and unalterable law. Yeah. Jane. The other Jane. Um, I hope I can articulate this. Um, I'm a teacher and I teach English to immigrants and refugees. And so my question is about your statement, which I'm not sure I quite got, about um, it could be narcissistic to say I did a good job. Because I uh, actually one of my goals is to get them to feel like they're doing a good job. And I think we all really need that in this culture. Like, there's so many bombardments that we're not doing a good job that uh, I think it's healthy. I guess uh, perhaps it's more uh, focusing on how wholesome it feels to do your best or something like that. Well, it's a wonderful question. Um, Let's see. So, I guess I think of it a little bit using the Buddhist metaphor of the raft. In that, I think that um, it is really important to establish a sense of worth. And uh, many of, of you probably are familiar with the uh, re- reaction that Dalai Lama had when people started asking him about self-doubt and self-shame and self-loathing. He, he struggled with his translators for minutes in the front of thousands of people to try to get, what are you talking about? Because in his culture... Um, there, there just wasn't that sense of kind of uh, personal worthlessness that many Westerners, me included, have struggled with, inadequacy and so forth. So um, to heal that and to fill that hole in the heart over time is skillful means. It frees attention for practice. It also helps us operate with other people more generously. We feel less needy. And... That's why um, I think the method of taking in the good when healthy narcissistic supplies do come your way is really, really important. Particularly when I think about people like immigrants who are already you know, grappling with, such, you know, with feeling good about themselves in, in this culture and the rest of that. That said, shifting now to a different frame, a frame that's interested in true self-transcendence, you know, true self-liberation through naked seeing, to use the term you know, of a book in Tibetan Buddhism, then I think what happens is what's helpful is to abandon the raft of healthy self-worth, if you will, uh, or the, the I-ness of that, that I did well, I'm a good guy, and all the rest, and move and, let, and relax the sense of I. There's still a person, a person who feels of worth, but there's less of a sense of me in that, I guess. And I would say this particular topic uh, is one I've, personally played with a lot and I really find that it's it's very prone to philosophizing to a thicket of views and more than anything you know it's been helpful for me and I invite it you know for you to see for yourself is to work with it experientially you know what happens when there's more taking things personally or less taking things personally you know what follows on the kind of greedy grabbing after narcissistic supplies does more happiness or less happiness follow you know, and, and um, I think there's a distinction between me great 
and the enlightenment factor of faith that this one, this one over here has healthy qualities that can be counted upon and that has, as she said earlier in the back there, has a right to be here. That's just Maybe a couple more people and then we'll move on. Yeah, great, Carolyn. Can you pass the microphone to him? Uh, so um, I would actually like to ask a question maybe out, out of the emotional realm and, and switch back to, which is I think is cumulative today, the, um, some of the brain things that you were talking about and the, the chemical things. I, I sometimes work with people um, in, and give Dharma talks with group that have, the people that have congenital conditions and chemical conditions that you know, that they have to deal with. And so um, I, I, patience, it's one of the virtues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering if you, in your experience, either one of you um, can, can speak to that, what, what you found, what you would counsel people. Do you mean in terms of people who... I mean people who have... Uh, who have depression? A- a- autism. Well, th- yeah, that could be depression also, but actual or having... Um, or having lupus or having, you know, actual... Autoimmune conditions. Autoimmune conditions or, um, or, or other physical conditions. Like I'd like to, uh, on the first part of this month, uh, 10th, 11th of November, <coughs> we did a day long at Spirit Rock called Meditating with the Wounded Brain, um, which is on our website and which there's a lot of resources. We've done some thinking about that. Uh, I'd start off first with the statement, patience, and then more patience, and then more patience. The trigger for this wounded brain day long was the cons- was actually the stroke that Ramdas had. Um, for those of you who were here at Lou Richmond's uh, concert about six months ago, you may or may not know that he had brainstem encephalitis and was out for a period of six months. And he wrote about it in a book called Raising Lazarus, which really an eloquent, eloquent book on what it is like to be a Dharma practitioner and to come back from coma. There, in the, and so I, I'd, I'd commend Lou's book to you. Uh, and uh, just a, a real excellent text. This stuff is hard enough to learn with an intact brain. What you have to do in working with people or working with yourself, if you are unfortunate enough to have one, um, is to be very skillful in the choice of methods, in the choice of means. It may be in somebody who is nonverbal that the only practice that is available is for you to come in and sit and do metta for them, with them, as a caretaker. And when we get into people who have strokes or dementia or autism or ADD or a number of other conditions and depression, things that affect their ability to function in routine society, put that in quotes, that's where, that's where I think this, this practice becomes something where we really have to pay attention to, to skillful means and where caretakers and people who are involved in the sangha uh, with these people become critical because 
For people who have an intact brain are capable of comprehending and capable of understanding and capable of taking that stuff back to their zafu and sitting down and doing it, um, the path is hard. For, for these other people, it, the sangha is critical to bring them forward. And so that, that's kind of where I'll leave that. Uh, and then there's a, little, a much longer discussion in terms of um, perhaps some of the curative properties of certain meditative practices that we may be able to get into later. I'll add to that very briefly two points. The first being that um, that uh, psychosocial methods, which means meditation, social support, etc., have a lot of effectiveness in terms of altering the neurochemistry of the brain on the one hand. Mm-hmm. So I think that in terms of in terms of dampening the stress, for example, that uh, uh, tends to activate an autoimmune illness, or in terms of dampening the stress that tends to wear on the memory systems of the brain, um, certainly contemplative practice or social support, good friends, good lovers, good community, uh, really can have a physical benefit in the brain on the one side of it. Going the other way, I think very often it's really helpful. I'm a software guy, right? I'm a psychologist. I really have come to value hardware. Partly aided there by my wife, who's a clinical nutritionist and also someone who got very depleted through motherhood and we wrote a book about it, etc. But the point about that is that in your handout, there's a discussion of ways to promote a quieter mind. And I think there's a lot to be said for skillful means, to be sure that can help alter brain chemistry that then enable contemplative practice. So you can go either way. Okay, how about one more person? Yeah, yeah great. Can, I, you, can you hear me? Um, all through this afternoon, I've, I've had questions about uh, attachment and because we've been dealing with I bringing an idea of practice to the practice and maybe I got an overdose of, the, of uh, caution against doing that. So could, could you just comment, comment on, there's obviously a balance here, um, but can, can you put attachment uh, grasping after an idea of what my practice is supposed to be like in the context of what we've been talking about this afternoon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very profound question. One of the things, in ter- and I'll go back to the, the statement that Rick made about the raft. You know, the, the final attainment of Nibbana is dependent upon the dropping of the desire for attaining Nibbana. Yeah. 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 To get there, you still have to have the desire to attain Nibbana. Yeah. So, what we're offering today are logs for your raft. Pick and choose. But eventually you're going to have to get off the raft. And some of the logs that I'm sending your way, you're going to look at it and say, what the hell? And some are going to be, oh, that looks good. Put that in your raft. Whatever gets you across the river. Uh, Thank you. I have two quick additions to that. Um, First is that uh, on um, well, uh, if you think about it, you're really speaking to two fundamental wings of practice. Mm, yeah. One wing is being with; the other is working with. 
you need both to soar. Um, and you, you can look out there and you can see that much about practice and many teachings are about simply being with experience. And there are, all, are also other teachings about working with experience. Now, um, both are necessary. I personally think being with is the most important of all. It's the senior one because when all else fails, we can always be with experience. Right? We can always be mindful of it. On the other hand, it's helpful to know where your strong suits are. Many people, myself included, were really trained in working with experience through the human potential movement, psychological training, yada, yada, yada. That's great and really needed to balance in terms of being with. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of us who are pretty good at being with experience but not very effective in our own brains, in our own minds, in terms of working with our experience. And I am a little biased myself, particularly in terms of people interested in spiritual practice, in a sincere question, which is, where are you today compared to a year ago? You know? And where are you in terms of the ardency, the diligence, the resolution, or the mindfulness that's brought to daily life or brought to actual sitting practice? And I think for every person who stresses and strains too much, you know, has too much superego function, woo, bad, bad meditator, bad meditator. For every one of those I've met, I've, t- I've met ten others who are far too laid back. <laughs> whatever, sit today, sit tomorrow, whatever, you know. So you decide for yourself uh, what you know, would be most useful for you. Stupid meditation. So they accomplish it. Thanks. All right, any, let's move on. Now we're going to talk about concentration. I guess I'll intro this. You do the intro. So now we're getting into not just steadiness. We've now really moved into the deep end of the pool. So as a quick sense, how many of you have ever done a retreat that was a concentration retreat? At Spirit Rock or with Lee Brasington or other people? Okay, great. So it's a minority of people in the room. Um, how many of you have ever had, without psychedelics, an extraordinary experience of non-ordinary awareness? Either on a retreat, yeah, much, much, much show of, larger show of hands. So we're, this is the deep end of the pool we're talking about here. Now, the Buddha described concentration in a wonderful way. And I'm actually going to read this because there's a certain, you know, the, uh, the The Dharma is uh, in an oral tradition and there's a certain power in, um, you know, the um, hearing of it. And this is where he talks about the first four of the jhanas in this progressive process. So he says, and what, friends, is right concentration of the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a person enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So think of those terms as very precise operationalizations, quite precise about the location of this particular state. And then with the stilling of applied and sustained sustained thought, the person enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Then, with the fading away as well 
of rapture, the person abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce he or she has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. And then last, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he or she enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. This is called right concentration. 